Will free speech in America end up being a casualty of the war between Hamas and Israel? What does the domestic American DEI industry's posture on the war reveal about their ideology? On other fronts, do we need to regulate AI and maybe ban TikTok? And why is Josh Hawley teaming up with Bernie Sanders to attack Citizens United? We'll discuss these matters and more on today's edition of Independent Outlook. And as always, I am joined by my colleague, Williamson Evers. Uh, Bill Evers, nice to see you. I do. Uh, Bill Evers is the director of our Center on Educational Excellence and, in general, a polymath who knows way more than I do about most of the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, he's I kind do, of a philo- He's philosopher in residence as well as a specialist in politics and education. So, um, Bill, let's talk about some of these topics today. Uh, I don't think we can probably claim too much expertise on exactly what's going on in the war between Hamas and Israel and, and who's doing what and how to measure it all. But I think we can say something of interest on what's happening in response on campuses in the United States. It's quite a brouhaha, is it not? It certainly is, Graham. And, the, and what, uh, are we, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing uh, a lot of protests by people who support the uh, Hamas side or Palestinian side might express it different ways or be perceived in different ways on that. What exactly? But it's also sometimes uh, a, a, certainly unpleasant for supporters of Israel and Jews. Uh, but it's uh, and and it sometimes not only goes from unpleasantness, but it can be violence. Uh, direct violence, it can be intimidation. Uh, So, and certainly the the recipients don't want to have any of those things, whether we as defenders of free speech and uh, academic freedom are comfortable with all the things that Israel supporters want to have is something we should explore. Certainly, uh, there seems to be now a preponderance of agitation on campuses against the Israeli side of the conflict in favor of Hamas's position in Palestine free from the river to the sea. And so that seems to be the preponderance of the academic uh, agitation, if I'm not mistaken. And as a result of that, it seems like there have been some, some donors to major universities who are questioning whether... The universities deserve their support if, in fact, there's going to be such a one-sided approach to these campuses. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, on that, in a way, they're a little late. Uh, the leftist uh, yeah. <laughs> trend of uh, the leftist trend in the professoriate is really not something new. Been around a long time. Uh, and this, the, the, all this turmoil not only on campus, but elsewhere in the society, it may give people uh, opportunity to relook at wokeness, political correctness, critical race theory, and all these different things, uh, kind of casual decisions about who is an oppressor and who is oppressed. Classical liberals are not opposed to looking at who is being oppressed, uh, but I think we're more careful than the left is. Well, and, everybody uh, should be concerned about oppression and abuse. Yes, the question that's is right. getting the details right. Exactly. 
exactly. So getting back to free speech, uh, so, you know, violence is something that classical liberals are completely against, and the U.S. legal system, when fair, running fairly, is also you know, blocking this. And federal... So one of the problems with this is federal aid education. So there's there's regular civil law and order and the police and so forth, and they should be protecting you against force and violence. Uh, and that includes threats and intimidation, carefully understood. But there's also federal aid to education, and it has rules about discrimination that we have to get into. So... We have to. We also have to distinguish. One person may say, "From the river to the sea," describing uh, between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, and the Palestinian may say, "We want a Palestinian state there, or a binational state that we control, or drive all the Jews out, or kill all the Jews." There may be a variety of things they mean, but none of which are terribly pleasant for the Israelis. And that, I think we have to say fairly, it's ugly, uh, but it's also free speech. You can have ugly views, hateful views, but they are still free speech. Unless uh, you're inciting to violence. In college, right. In college, you also want students to experience things that they are not used to or comfortable with. And have to debate them and con- you know confront them intellectually. And so, yes, but you're absolutely right. If it's you know kill kill the butchers, this is I'm thinking of a food riot in the French Revolution or something. Kill the butchers, string them up, stab them, confiscate the grain for, that's right in front of, and the butchers are right nearby. So that's. That's illegal. That's a threat of violence. That's incitement to violence. And if that's something is going on on campus or out on the streets of the United States, that's illegal also. But we have to, we still want to have free speech advocacy of unpopular ideas as well as popular ideas. And popular ideas have no problem. They, they survive fine. And it's right, they define. a question in a crisis like this, if we can sustain free speech for unpopular ideas, unpopular with masses and mobs, but also whether they're popular or unpopular with politicians and the public authorities. So back in the 1970s, uh, there was that remarkable situation where the U.S. Nazi Party wanted to march through the predominantly Jewish suburb of Skokie, right. Illinois. Right. Made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, in 1977, if I'm not mistaken, or thereabouts. And the court ruled, I think, very wisely that uh, as uh, heinous and disgusting as the symbolism and chants and so forth were, that it was protected right. by the First Amendment in a public space, I mean, subject to reasonable regulations and noise ordinances and permits and so forth, but couldn't right. be forbidden. Um, that was a, exactly quite an right. important milestone in American law. Yes, it was, and also in just political culture and the debate around it was, of course, furious. But uh, there was also th- another thing in the 60s was, was a court decision on whether a court that 
accepted federal money, was a public university, uh, could ban Students for a Democratic Society, which was a radical leftist organization of those days, from campus, not allow it to have an affiliate on there. The courts found, no, even if it had a violent ideology, even if it advocated, you know, radical transformation of American society, and by radical, I mean very thoroughgoing, and uh, the court said, no, they they could not bar them. So this, this pertains also to the situation in Florida where uh, the DeSantis about, administration. Yeah. So Rod DeSantis is the governor, and he has said that various uh, Palestinian solidarity organizations, committees for justice in Palestine, various things, he doesn't want to have those on public university campuses in Florida. And he's likely to run into this same legal barrier that the SDS case uh, sets up. Now, his staff have tried to get around it by saying, well, this organization, the Solidarity Organization, uh, is part of Hamas. And by existing and on providing the floor, supposedly material, material support. support. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course... Uh, I think generally American law would would su- support them if they could show this. Uh, the they haven't produced evidence, and they're probably right. going to have to mm-hmm. produce it in court. Uh, it it's also a little bit more complicated if somebody could genuinely show that these organizations are in fact part of Hamas. So if they were. It, if they were receiving orders from us central, so to speak, and carrying them out. If they're just rhetorically sympathetic, horrible, ugly, you know, that Hamas is obviously a group committing atrocities and waging terror, terror and, and on... we should point out, committed in its charter to the destruction of the state of Israel and to the elimination yes. of Jews from that part of the world. Yes, but the the... The question is, if these groups are actually proven to be part, like a mafia subgroup being part of a larger mafia right. and taking orders and following orders, then then they probably also can be banned. But uh, again, it's an evidentiary question. You, you know, you, you brought up the question of federal funding. Um, which right. is kind of in the background here, less obvious to people. But as I'm listening right. to you know us dis- discuss this issue of campus free speech and so forth, I'm thinking to myself, well, shouldn't it be possible in a free society for there to be associations of people who associate together to create learning communities who who can exclude from those learning communities voices that they want to exclude? Yes, yes. And those I think would the be answer private. is yes. Those would be private universities, truly private. But there are, there's like a handful of private ones in the whole country. All the rest right. are quasi-public. Take, take lots of federal money. That's right. That's the so, issue, yeah. So, so that they federal are money, acting under, under color of state authority, in effect, because they got all that federal money. Well, they, te- they took conditional grants, and the conditional grants include these rules about discrimination. Now, it's again, I have to be getting in the weeds a little bit here. So the law does not 
forbid a university or a college to discriminate based on religion. So you can have a Catholic or a Mormon or a Dunker Baptist or whatever it is, college or university, and you can give positions of trust and responsibility, and you can have, you can have admissions criteria that are religiously based. That is while the, taking federal money. While taking federal money. Yeah, that's However, the key part. And and by the way, we could get into if that's true. Why can't you do this more in K twelve education? But that's a completely different story. Anyway, in higher education, yeah. you can do that, but you can't uh, discriminate based on ethnicity, and you can't. And this can include things like territories of the world where some ethnicity predominates. That you can get in trouble if you're somehow not giving equal treatment and that's tied to that. So this is where the issue uh, comes up and the, the U.S. Department of Education issued what's called a Dear Colleague letter. Uh, so they also Whenever I now, hear this, that Dear Colleague, just, it sounds ominous if right. it's coming from the government. Right. Dear Colleague. Right. This, <laughs> this is like we're here from the government and we're right, here to help exactly. you kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, so th those are advice letters. They are not law, although the U.S. Department of Education often acts as if they are law and mandatory. And the recipients, the college presidents and so forth, worry with the immense discretionary power that the federal government has over who gets what grants, they worry that if they don't follow the Dear Colleague advice letter, that they will not get money when there's any discretion from somebody, the federal government. So what did the new, the new Dear Colleague letter say and how, did, how, what can we say about the seven schools that were just uh, told that they're under investigation? Right, so, I saw that, yeah. including Columbia, so, Cooper Union. Right. Cornell, University of Pennsylvania, a school district in Kansas. We probably haven't named them all, but you get the general idea. So the Dear Colleague letter said, that if the words or actions were severe or pervasive and limited to some extent the educational experience of the student, then the college better watch out because they might lose their federal funding. The problem is there is case law, federal case law, decisions by federal courts pertaining to all this because Believe it or not, this is not the first time we've had troubles on campus. Indeed. So the, the thing is that the, the law, according to these court interpretations, says that the words or actions have to be severe and pervasive, which is different from severe or pervasive. In other words, both severe and pervasive. Yes, because if you just say severe... One incident could trigger it. And if you just say pervasive, very mild, unpleasant things going on over a long time could trigger it. 
So that's those those immensely broaden what could, you know, get this college in trouble. The thing is that also the the federal laws, as given by these courts, says that and it has to deny students an education. It has to block them from getting an education. It has to prevent them. And the federal government in this letter that's from the Department of Education that just came out says limits. Well, limits <laughs> limits is anything, right? I mean, so it's they've immensely broadened the thing. Now, we don't know that much, at least I don't, and maybe Graham knows more than I do, uh, so there were some vile things that have happened on campus. But this, this all began October 7th. We're now, you know, we're over a month later, but it might be a little short of pervasive right now. And in terms right. of pervasive and severe, as far as what I have read, and the most ugly one that I read about was in Cornell, which I'm not going to upset the stomachs of our listeners and viewers here by relating, but it was very ugly. Uh, it didn't happen multiple times, and I really couldn't tell that it stopped them from getting an education, the, res- the people on the receiving end. So... Uh, there's certainly litigation ahead, and there, but there also may be horrible bureaucratic red tape and, and intimidation of colleges and how they run their own business. So, you know, what this thought I have that kind of summarizes this is that, like with any war situation uh, in this war context, there are uh, social consequences, even in countries outside the war zone. And but unfortunately, war always triggers various threats to civil liberties. And it so does. much as I lament, and I'm going to, at the moment, I'm going to lament some more, the utter lopsidedness of campus opinion on the subject, much as I right. lament that, uh, we had better be careful to make sure that freedom of speech is not curtailed out of even appropriate sympathies um, so right. that we don't lose that gem, really, of the educational um, experience. We also have to watch what's happening with regard to U.S. involvement in this conflict because, you know, it's every, seems as if every few days the involvement of the U.S. is increasing. It does, yeah. Mm -hmm. we're We're not completely sure. And, and also the rhetoric of some American politicians. You know, let's go to war with Iran. I, I must have heard that from a lot of people. Uh, that's a big... <laughs> in, in any case, if they're going to do something, we're already quite involved. Uh, we put American forces in, in the larger war zone by having these battle groups uh, at sea. And, you know, if we're going to take steps, like we're, we're, we're shooting, we're shooting, we're, 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 well, we're, we're really shooting from fighter planes. But the point is, we're in the, the larger uh, scene of battle here. 
And, you know, the U.S. has not declared war on Syria. It has not declared war on Hamas. It has not declared war on whoever owns these warehouses and manufacturing things in Syria that are being hit. And the American system of constitutional republicanism requires deliberation by Congress and decisions by Congress before we go to war. And so acts of war, like shooting missiles at foreign countries, are things that shouldn't be done absent. But also the American public does not realize, I mean, maybe it's beginning to realize now, that the U.S. has all these bases with American forces on land around the Middle East. I, I can remember driving... I can remember driving in Jordan. Uh, so, I, so I've been in the Middle East a number of times, including uh, about a half a year in Iraq. And I was on vacation in Jordan, and my driver said to me, down that road is America, secret American base. I, I don't know if he was telling me the truth, but there are, there are quite a bit of American spots in Syria and in Iraq. And they're, you know, they're just sort of like sitting ducks, sitting targets for drones and mortars and rockets. And so far, you know, there's been some tangential, there's been brain injuries, maybe, uh, certainly concussion shocks of some sort. I think a contractor sort of died indirectly, uh, but, you know, if we're all over the place, pretty soon some people are going to die. And what if Blinken is missed somewhere in the, you know, you can just easily imagine ways that this could horribly get out of hand. So, uh, just as a, as a word on that, um, on our website, which is independent.org, uh, we have uh, published a piece uh, by our colleague Ivan Eland, who points out that Despite the Cold War having ended long ago, the U.S. still has 800 military bases in 70 countries, which it's is good a to major bear that footprint. Yes. It's a major vulnerability, they are all over major the world. exposure. Right. Mm -hmm. And not only so, that, but we could talk, Bill, about the U.S. involvement, not presently, but in the past in this region. There was that fascinating right. piece uh, in Slate uh, at, in late October that you drew my attention to, uh, pointing out that it was really under the George W. Bush administration uh, when Condoleezza Rice was the Secretary of State uh, that elections were held in the Palestinian territories at the U.S.'s uh, you know, encouragement. And Firm at that urging. point in January 2000. Pardon me? Our firm urging, yes. And yeah. at that point, so back Hamas won the election. <laughs> well, and a plurality. Then, 44% to the Fatah won 41%. Uh, but the result of that was a bloodshed broke out between Fatah and Hamas. Fatah right. withdrew to the West Bank. Hamas took over Gaza. Uh, there's right. actually never been uh, an election in Gaza itself since that time. Right. Uh, and the U.S. position was that somehow elections would magically cure the situation. Uh, right, we had a little bit of democracyitis. Yeah, uh, de well, democratic it, naivete. Actually, it's also it's sorry, it's also ironic 
that Israel promoted Hamas as a counter to the more secular, more radical Nasserite PLO, Fatah, Palestinian Authority, the Yasser Arafat Abbas wing of the Palestinians. They thought, you know, that the secularists were leftists and rather open possibly to communist influence of some sort and that the religious groups would not be and might be an alternative, a counter to uh, leftist radicalism. And oh, but the we, religious groups so were the, worse. So the, so the Israelis promoted Hamas, uh, and of course it immediately got out of hand. And then, not only that, the Israelis assassinated the founder of Hamas, who they had originally promoted, and the effect of that was he had been holding off Iranian influence in Hamas. And once he was uh-huh. gone, at the hands of the Israelis, the Iranians had tremendous influence. This is so, complicated, Bill. Th- yes. <laughs> and the, U- the U.S. has though. been, it's unfortunately, it is. I mean, the U- but the U.S. has unfortunately been deeply involved for a long time in ways that seem to go right. back and forth and... Uh, uh, it would probably be wiser not to be so deeply engaged. Also, a lot of the previous rationales for involvement are not true anymore, certainly a lot less true, particularly with regard to the supply of oil. I mean, you know, we we know that U.S. practice can produce a lot of oil domestically or get it from regions other than the Middle East. And so why is this part of our defense perimeters? <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it's a, this is a bigger st- question than we have to answer here. Indeed it is. But, so um, let, me just, let me just get back to the domestic front, if I may, for right. a moment. Uh, you know, having made the point a few minutes ago, that we uh, had better ensure that people are free to say what they want to say so long as right. they're not engaging in violence or directly inciting violence. Having made that point, I said I was going to come back to it. I want to come back to that point. The things that are being said are ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I don't want them to be stopped from being said by law. That would be terrible or by university policy, say. But some of these things just make no sense, um, especially, I would say, on the so-called pro-Palestinian side. You've got these academics putting out things, talking about, for example, um, uh, Palestine and trans rights are the litmus test for social justice. Or there are these intersectionality memes that I've been reading about. uh, Free Palestine is a feminist issue. Uh, It's a reproductive rights issue. It's an indigenous rights issue. It's a climate justice issue. It's a queer rights issue, et cetera. Uh, There's this remarkable melding of the standard progressive super left well, it's their, ideological it's their, stuff. It's their intersectional ideology. Right. So they're and, trying and to wonder, bring together. They're trying to bring together all these things that in their minds constitute repression or oppression and say right. they're integrated Not- with this larger question. The interesting thing, of course, is that 
Hamas uh, cares nothing at all for rights of homosexuals or exactly. you know, any, I mean, anything Israel particular is the only, for Right. <laughs> Israel's the Israel. only country in the Middle East that tolerates sexual nonconformism. Right, exactly. And, and a so, lot of the, the groups that are protesting here would be beheaded under Sharia law. They certainly would have an unpleasant ex- experience. Uh, <laughs> it's, they certainly would. Yeah. So, so it's ridiculous, uh, but there's but there's a there's an underlying logic to it, Bill. If I could just pursue the thought a little further, sure. And you already alluded to it. The underlying logic um, seems to be that, um, as this was pointed out in a piece uh, earlier uh, this month by Victor Davis Hanson, which I found pretty intriguing. He points out that during the Nazi era in European history, uh, Jews were singled out and said to be subhuman because they weren't white and they weren't European. But now it's entirely flipped uh, because, right. uh, as uh, Victor puts it, one of the key issues left-wing anti-Semites have been so effective at galvanizing hatred of Israel is their careful effort to brand themselves as DEI victims while tarring Jews with the empty white supremacy slur. So in other words, because Jews <laughs> have been successful- Jew, Jews are sometimes pigmentally similar to Europeans yeah, and also- right. Uh, they are called white adjacent, even if they have Middle Eastern fe- features, let's say. So uh, it's there's just some, there are many things involved here, but certainly Jew hatred is a major feature. But that so. seems to be the constant, you know, whether they're, they're not European enough or they're too European, either way, the, the Jews right. are on the, the short end of the so-called justice stick. Uh, well, I, it, it seems I to put, me to be capricious. I just uh, want to mention that on the Independent uh, Institute's website, I have a annotated bibliography on anti-Semitism that is quite detailed and is great background for people that are interested in this. Uh, so we're, we're seeing this combined with other leftist tropes. And that's what's, you know, roiling the streets and the campuses. Indeed it is. And the campuses, as we said before. And so I think there's a kind of strange um, underlying bent to the ideological position uh, of the pro-Palestinian American academics, which seems pretty perverse. Right. So neither Graham nor I think that the Palestinians living in either the West Bank or Gaza have had it easy, that they haven't had things done no, to them that shouldn't, have, shouldn't happen. And we'd like to see their situation, including their abilities to earn a living and trade and to express themselves and have civil liberties. We all would like to see that improve. Some of that's because of Israel. Some of that's because of their own Arab rulers. And uh, I would even add that you know, Palestinian refugees in other countries, such as Jordan or Lebanon, are often have terrible dis- disabilities that are imposed on them. So, can they just start a business? Can they own property? Can they become citizens of these countries that they're in? Can they vote in the elections in these countries? To the extent, I mean, Lebanon has real elections. Jordan is uh, a monarchy with some advice from. Anyway, the point is, you're, 
these refugees uh, have it bad, include, not only in Gaza and the West Bank, but also in surrounding countries. So we'd like to see all that improve. We can't really get into the details of that, just like we can't get into the details of the war. But uh, we don't want to. We don't want to neglect that. No, we don't. Very do, problematic. I do want to just say that the the bottom line should be that all people of goodwill should refrain from vilifying and demonizing groups. Uh, right. And there's an I, awful I lot of that right. going on right now. So yes. we should turn the page, Bill, because there's a few more things we wanted to talk about today, if I'm not Absolutely. mistaken. Where would you like to go next, Bill? Well, I think I would like to go to uh, Trump gag orders and uh, the Josh Hawley idea of overturning Citizens United. And, yeah, how about that? And then... Maybe something about regulating artificial intelligence, and maybe okay. let's, to, uh, if we have let's, time for it, something about the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission's new racial disparate you know, out disparate impact rules, and maybe the automobile kill switch that is going to be in all cars in the okay. future. That's a That's lot. That's a lot of stuff. Maybe we could one forget by, about the gag. One by Let's one. forget about the gag order and just stipulate okay, okay. that it's okay. overly broad and it's this is a political trial and to block him yeah, from but, saying but, stuff. But Trump is crazy. Shouldn't he be stopped from saying crazy stuff? And the answer is probably not. That's <laughs> from right. A legal That's point right. of view. Yeah. Okay. That's right. So okay. going on. So let's talk about the. Uh, the overturning of Citizens United. So Yeah, what's the deal here? Because Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders are sort of political opposites, but they seem to be on the same side. Is that a good sign or a bad sign? Well, if we can take ourselves back, the or origins of this is there was a group headed by David Bossie, and it made a movie about Hillary Clinton back when she was more politically active. And the people said, oh, you can't do that. You're making a contribution to, in effect, to a campaign. So the courts held, no, you have freedom of speech. You should be able to make movies about candidates and things like that and not have it count as money that's under the control of the candidate and have it regulated and so forth. So this doesn't, I mean... Corporations don't really engage in direct donations to candidates, particularly they might bundle things. Corporations are made of people, okay? And they, I mean, they have a certain relationship to contracts, various detailed things. The point is, they're not really doing this. Tiny, tiny, tiny amount of donating, donations are 2% are this kind of really regulated speech. The people that we're talking about are like Citizens United. They're associations. They're the National Rifle Association. They're the Humane Society. This is all, all pointed out uh, by Brad Smith in a Wall Street Journal article. And that's who's going to be blocked by this. And some of these are conservative associations of some sort or another. So he's not going to really do anything if he he succeeds at this, and I think the courts will, they pass this law, the courts will just rapidly overthrow it as a violation of the First Amendment. And 
you know, at the time that Citizen United decision came down, conservatives and libertarians were just ecstatic that the free speech and, and the campaign area was being vindicated. And now, because they're so fed up with corporations adopting wokeness, political correctness, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all this different stuff, they're willing to have the rights of individuals and corporations and, in reality, the rights of associations curtailed. It's unfortunate. I, I, I don't think... I think if it passes, the courts will overturn. Very likely. But but what's interesting is what you're telling us then, Bill, is that Hawley wants to overturn Citizens United principles so that uh, wokeness can be stopped in corporate speech. But, but Sanders but, of wants course to it's do not, so. Yeah. He hates Sanders wants to do so. so yeah, he's a socialist. He hates corporations. Yeah, he's a, right. Right. So he would like to limit the freedom of those corporations for socialist reasons, and Hawley would like right. to limit them for what? Con, Anti-woke conservative uh, reasons. Nationalistic conservative reasons. He, But he's not going to really succeed in terms of the things that provoked him, like special underwear in Target stores or... Disney princesses that have woke views or whatever it is that's bothering him. This is not going to change that if those companies want to alienate or win over customers and those practices yeah. are not going to be affected by a overthrow. Yeah, I would say let them United. alienate their customers if they want to yeah. alienate them, you know? <laughs> if they do, then uh, maybe someone that looks to a broader, less woke audience will uh, spring up to compete. So the, could, the common could, element... May, maybe that happened with Bud Light, for example. Maybe it did. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> uh, the common element here in these two stories is Josh Hawley. So he wants to overturn Citizens United. He's been agitating to ban TikTok, uh, and he and, and Rand Paul have been disagreeing about that. What's the deal there? Well... Uh, so there's sort of two sides to the TikTok thing. So one is content that is either deemed degenerate or inaccurate or politically subversive in some ways, including perhaps anti-Israel content. Okay, that's one side of it. And the other side of it is that when you're on TikTok, the people running TikTok you know, know who you are, and they know that you're watching this and whatever, and they may they may well have in their electronic systems a record of this. And TikTok is a, a communist-ruled China-based company. So, so some so some people on the the nationalistic conservative side of things want to ban it for national security reasons. Some people on the left, the, the Communist Party, uh, Communist Party of China is using it, TikTok to vacuum up information about millions of Americans. Well, it, it could. Uh, there, you know, the TikTok officials say that that's not happening, but you know, they could change the policy in the future and say to the company, "We want it," and the you know the company would have to do it because it's a authoritarian country. 
So, you know, they could breach the so-called firewall or whatever. So the thing is, they don't have to do that. The, the Chinese government, the Communist Chinese Chinese Communist Party could buy the stuff on the web, uh, not even the dark web. Uh, they could buy it on the regular web, all this information about people. So they don't need TikTok in order to get this. And it would be a huge influence in the micro operations of companies to disallow people from buying uh, information about possible customers. And, you know, the Chinese don't have to buy it directly. They can go to some person in Thailand and say, buy this for us or whatever. So they can get this information. It's not really that secret. You might think it's secret, but you're wrong. I have never been on TikTok, so I am not in that I'm not in that Chinese database. I want to see you do a dance video on TikTok. That would be fun. Well, I think that, you know, I was a federal employee for several short periods, and uh, supposedly the Chinese breached the federal personnel records, and that could encompass time that I was there. So, yeah, it may be too late also. Well, you know, TikTok's I, I, just part of the broader TikTok's part of the broader social media environment, and we just got an interesting proposal from one of the Republican presidential candidates, Nikki Haley, that anonymous posting to social media should be outlawed. Right. Yikes! Right. She got quick feedback on that from rival presidential candidates as well as civil liberties groups, saying that anonymity had been part of political discourse in America going back to colonial times and many pamphlets opposing uh, British rule. Like the Federalist Papers. Right. The Federalist Papers were written by (laughs) Publius, which is not actually Mm -hmm. the names of Madison and Hamilton and Jay. I want to get back to your point about uh, Rand Paul, though. Rand Paul also pointed out that uh, what a great way to alienate the younger generation who likes TikTok, the band, I'll say, uh, one of their favorite means of communication. And uh, he said it reeked of 1950s McCarthyism. So that was Senator well, she, Joe McCarthy. She did of, issue a statement, uh, Nikki Haley issued a statement clarifying yeah. that she does favor anonymous free speech for Americans, but she didn't think that Iranians and Chinese and North Koreans should have free speech right. on our social media. I don't even think that's right, right. because like individuals who are Chinese in China and elsewhere, individuals yeah. who are Chinese in Iran and elsewhere. They, they need some protection. Uh, and we need to hear their <laughs> they voices. They need some protection from their own government. Exactly, exactly. I'd, I hope that Iranian individuals have anonymity on social media. It would help, help them and us. Right. Well, I mean, she originally said it absolutely and for everybody. She's trying to backpedal. I mean- that's better. It's better to backpedal than to stick it to is a indeed. very bad idea. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, she, she's also coming up in terms of um, support in public opinion polls and donor support. Right. Uh, the one of the candidates, uh, T- Tim Scott, was from her own state, and so she's 
going to pick up some money and from And he cannot be at, her vice president, therefore, because they're, they're both from South Carolina. Hey, that never stopped anybody. Dick Cheney was living in Texas when George Bush asked him, so he just moved his residence to Wyoming. Oh, I see, and, I see, I see. Uh, So people have already figured out these things. Uh, well, now, tell me a little bit about AI, Bill. I mean, am I going to lose my job as a talking head, some kind of AI talking head, and should we regulate it governmentally? Uh, you are an avatar right now. You only think <laughs> you're a human. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's different kinds of regulation, and... Some of it's fairly innocuous, but the really interesting thing that quite a lot of people that write about this point out is that regulating artificial intelligence is promoted by the big tech companies. They want regulation. Why? Because they, since they're technically expert, they will help design the regulation and they have, ah. they're big, they're well capitalized, so they have the lawyers to say, our rivals are doing this, let's report on them. Uh, and, you know, it can be a, a way of excluding rivals from succeeding. So if Google wants regulation and, you know, Facebook meta wants regulation and all these things. They think they're going to succeed under the parameters of this regulation. And upstarts will have a terrible time getting launched and overcoming the barriers uh, to entry and compliance with these regulations. So It seems oftentimes that regulation for the sake of protecting quality in the consumer ends up having the effect of reinforcing monopolies. That is so right, and that is what is likely to come to pass as this develops. We just have to keep warning about that. Okay, okay. Well, we'll have you talk about this again in the future. Maybe as we come to a close here, what was that thing you said about an automobile kill switch? I don't really know what that's about. (laughs) So uh, there's a law, and the idea is that after a certain date, not too far in the future, all automobiles will have a kill switch built into them that if you drive not according to the algorithm attached to the kill switch, so the supposed idea is it will detect drunk driving, it will kill your engine. Uh-huh. Wow. So in the argument that critics make, which I find quite compelling, quite convincing, is essentially this equipment is uh, judge, jury, and executioner uh, in a drunk driving charge, and it might be that there are potholes that you, I mean, Graham and I can testify that there are roads in California with a lot of potholes. Yeah. You might want to be driving. They sure are. Kind of to evade them, to not have the under underbelly of your car destroyed or your tires are harmed. And yeah, that might very well 
I, I'm just using my imagination to stop the top of my head. That might very well look to an algorithm like you are a drunk driver. There you might be on the road with your engine stopped. So, good grief, that I could say, cause an accident by itself. It could cause you to die, you know. So, it's yeah, it's very troubling, and it certainly doesn't look like it was thought through very well. Yeah, so, let's, uh, let's, I, let's I'm not troubled go by there. another thing, too, if I may bring it up, and that is this racial uh, basis for broadband and the Federal Communications Commission. So right. they, mm-hmm. they've got their bit in their teeth. And uh, so they want to, and anything that uh, has a disparate impact. So let's say you're a digital platform of some sort and your ads don't have what they consider a perfect ethnic makeup portionality. Well, you could be shut down or fined or whatever. Uh, let's say you have credit for people that want to buy your, you're using credit cards for one thing, maybe. So let's say somehow the operations of that credit company have a dis- disparate impact on various ethnic groups or you know, people of different sexes or whatever it is. Uh, you could, again, be in trouble. Uh, let's say that... Anyway, I can I could I have a, a good imagination and people that have so, written so on this. So if you don't have the right proportionality, yeah, right. If you don't have the right uh, proportionality uh, of races, you're going to lose your broadband access. Yeah, yeah. Your ability. So it's, to, it's it's just like the automobile kill switch. Somebody, some algorithm, or somebody's going to make a judgment about what's really going well, on in your mind. Well, it's more likely even to be. It's more likely to be a bureaucrat or a politician that wants an easy way to get at you, or a way to intimidate you, or push you around, or get you to do something they want you to do. And so they have this intricate web tape. This. It's just a disaster waiting to happen, and it and it's more of this uh, racial identity politics destroying right. entrepreneurship and freedom of business. What we really need is the same rules for everybody, not the same outcomes for everybody. And of course, the the justification. Well, we want we um, want ideal. We want generality of rules, but we even have to be careful there because. You can frame a general rule to say yeah, you can. All, mm-hmm. beard, all bearded people who wear glasses who work in Oakland near the Oakland airport pretty soon we're getting that. Just defining Graham right, Walker. Right. So <laughs> uh, we're looking for ordered liberty. We're looking for property rights. We're looking for freedom of the person, the individual. And part of that is the rule of law and generality of law. And all of these regulations and things that we've been talking about recently are tyrannical and are in violation of right. constitutional liberties that we should be enjoying. Yeah, they are. And the thing is that um, the argument on their behalf, on behalf of these kind of specialized rules that favor certain groups over others. The justification, of course, is that uh, there has been uh, wrongdoing, 
discrimination in the past, in order to rectify past discrimination, we have to have rules that are no longer equal or general in their applicability. Um, the trouble is, you know, I'm sympathetic to the historical argument there, but unfortunately, every mechanism you create to supposedly does rectify past injustice. It does it anew. It does it anew, yeah, and it, it, it creates the consolidation of powers to be abused on a much more vast scale than even was the case before. Exactly. And if the people exactly. holding these new powers are perfect people, always be benevolent <laughs> and so forth, I guess that'd be okay, but what if they're normal human beings? You just can't create this kind of consolidated power for the sake of specialized treatment without having a huge downside. It's possible that not all politicians and bureaucrats are angels. I think we have to entertain it is that possibility. <laughs> we guard, may well indeed. A guard, a guard against infirmities in their character and personalities and behavior. I also want to mention, if we have a moment, that they had a report of the weaponization subcommittee having to do with a thing called the Election Integrity Project. And this was the thing where the Biden administration, uh, in a sense, uh, commandeered Stanford University, and they were setting up a censorship and surveillance system uh, related to election controversies and election news and supposed misinformation and disinformation and on and on. A very troubling thing, uh, not only that the federal government was doing this, not only that the Biden administration was doing this, but also that Stanford University, my alma mater, uh, was cooperating on this. So? Sounds like a bad idea to me. Well, they already did it. <laughs> they dismantled yeah, right. it, but they... they the, Ingenious, mind, ingenious minds could do it again. So I fear, so I fear. Listen, I think we're kind of at the end of our time today. Um, any parting shots from you, Bill, before we say goodbye? No, but it's been a pleasure to review the horrors of the news, and uh, we just have to keep vigilant <laughs> and analyze them as soundly as we can. We're, we're grateful to all our friends who join us for these conversations. Please join us again when we return for another edition of Independent Outlook. In the meanwhile, please uh, encourage you to go to our website, independent.org, where we have a lot of resources available to give you a pretty well-informed analysis of many major public issues, independent.org. Visit us frequently. We invite you to do that. Thanks for joining us, and thank you again, Bill Evers. Take care, everybody. Thank Bye -bye. you, Graham.